people would come over and be like, what's that? It's like, that's my legs, mate. It's just my legs. Just some giant legs. So listen, <sighs> listeners. Listen, listen. Jess has been telling me about Victorian taxidermy auctions. Yeah. And Jess and I coincidentally have a new Patreon <laughs> tier. It's the auction tier where <laughs> you join, we get money, and then we can buy the bat with human teeth. <laughs> why, why don't we have... Look... How do you get people like Donald Trump who are just like, mm, I have all this money, but no imagination. So I'm just going to coat everything in gold, I think, including my servants. <laughs> but then that's not creative. No. If you've got all this money, I mean, yes, fine, donate it to charities and people shouldn't have wealth and you know, blah, it's all evil. Blah, 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 blah. But, but if you have all this money, why aren't you spending it? On the little taxidermy diorama yes. of the battle between the mice and the frogs. Last week, I shit you not, there is this um, taxidermy diorama of frogs playing musical instruments. It was the worst <laughs> thing I'd ever seen in my life. I wanted it more than anything in the world. There were these pair of emu legs that like, we went for, for like $500 in the end. It was just a fucking pair of legs. And it's like, what would you do with that? You just have some... Some legs, people would come over and be like, what's that? It's like, that's my legs, mate. It's just my legs. Just some giant legs. It's a hat stand. <laughs> um, someone bought a human skull and I was watching it with my friend and we were just like, who's going to buy the dead man? Who's going to buy the man? <laughs> and it was a wonderful... <sighs> Now, I saw something horrifying. We're recording this on Easter Sunday, by the way. Oh, yeah. So what I'm about to say is apropos, happy Easter to everybody who celebrates Easter. And I believe that tonight is the last night of Passover. So I don't know the term for that. I tried to find out, but happy end of Passover <laughs> to people who celebrate that. But somebody shared an image of a taxidermied rabbit crucified like Christ <gasps> with a little crown of thorns. And it was horrifying okay. and i am sure probably offensive to people yeah. but i was also like how do you get to that point in your life <laughs> i okay i think it's as is the name of the game it's escalation because what i've been doing is now i've got i'm going bone hunting because Ooh. there's a lot of animals around me those animals guts to die and then I want those, I want their jump sticks and their inside <laughs> sticks, but I can't find them. And what you're supposed to do is like go around looking at the edge of roads near creeks. So I've just been kind of like entering into the, like the dark side of the woods where, where no people go dicking around, looking <laughs> under bushes and shit, looking for bones. And I feel like that's the step. The next step is that I'm going to take up taxidermy. You, you once did call me an, irrevocable hermit goblin yes. because out of the number of years that we've been friends now doing this podcast i've visited your house twice yeah. whereas you come to me and i bake and hiss at the sunlight as you open the mm -hmm. door but you need to invite me on these wood expeditions i'd go into the deep dark of the forest with you hunting for corpses burying corpses yes 
something with corpses. Like I was fucking around at the edge of someone's farm, and there's this like creepy, kind of fallen over, covered in ivy gate, and I was like, mm, "You better believe mm. I'm going through there." Because the good thing about Scotland is like we have the right to roam, and as long as you're not like actually kind of trespassing, you can just be anywhere, and people can't do shit, because it's like, I've got the right to roam, <laughs> leave me alone. So I was just like fucking around on someone's farm, looking in the hedges, like, is there a dead thing in here? <laughs> and then I went into this like dark side of the woods, and through this creepy gate, and I was like, I'm sure this means that there's some kind of haunted thing that I need to do after this, to cleanse myself of these spirits, but <laughs> I will invite you bone hunting with me. Great. So we are going bone hunting in your creepy forest. We should go to like Perth as well. I mean, what's what's the place? Pitlochry. Pitlochry has haunted forests. Yeah, definitely. We should go to all the forests of the world to find the dead things. And then slowly, like, we'll start living in the forest instead of visiting the forest and become bone hags. And then soon we will become the forest after living in the forest. And then we are the forest. And then it's like, then we become the world. And then we're suddenly we're Yggdrasil and everyone's like, what's going on? And it's going to be amazing. Patreon. The Lycan rule. <laughs> Yggdrasil tier. Where you fund us to become the forest. The forest gods. The lichen will make its home in our bones. <sighs> so people will enter the forest and they'll hear the wind whisper, Jess. <laughs> Philippa. Speaking of which, since everything's awful forever, I'm, I nearly said I'm Jess. Because <laughs> you introduced yourself first. Because we've become the forest now. <laughs> I'm Philippa and my name is spoken by the things that live in the earth. I'm Jessica, and what's that whispering through the breeze? Jess. Jess. <laughs> People hear, like, the clattering of the bone chimes that have been strung in the trees in our honor. <laughs> I, I want us to be like the hags from The Witcher, where we're just the, the horrible forest, mm. the bone hags, and, they, and we've got, like, armor made out of bones and just, like... Rats tied out in a, like a skirt instead of like a grass skirt, <laughs> it's a rat skirt. And dead children in bags that we carry on our on our waists, and like an extra pair of legs. And are those their legs, or are they someone else? Who knows? Are they emus? Like, why though? Ah, <laughs> uh, Jess, I've I know what my my dream is for my future now, yes. and it is not in the mortal realm. Mm -hmm. One day we'll get there on the Patreon tier with your patron help of patronage and also <laughs> fucking around in the woods looking for bones. So this is where I segue clumsily into what the episode is about and it's about none of this shit. Speaking of forest demons. The forest demons. So what's the opposite of the forest? I feel like the opposite of the forest is Chicago in the 1920s. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's the direct opposite of... Yes. First. But what I'm going to tell you today, what I'm going to do, listen, shut the fuck up, Philippa. Stop <laughs> it. Listen, I'm going to tell you about the perfect crime. Ooh. The perfect crime. Which is, I mean, some people say it's an elusive concept, but I actually think that probably a solved crime is the one that's the, the least. Like, how many crimes are unsolved? 
Almost all of them, I think. I mean, the perfect crime would be the crime that you never know takes place. Exactly. And then what's the fucking point of that? That's dull. All right, so we're looking for semi-perfect crimes? Mm. It's like the crime that you know you've been crimed at. You wake up and it's like, someone did a crime! But you don't know who did it. And they're too clever and elusive. You know, that that the kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So... What about those, these people, the kind of people to, to, to do this kind of crime that think they're smarter than everybody else, and also they <gasps> read Nietzsche, and also they're teenage boys, and also... Oh, I was going to say, stop describing me, Jess, <laughs> but okay, you lost me. And also they're disgustingly wealthy rich boys who are so bored they've got nothing better to do than to crime at people. Definitely not me. So this is it. So in 1924, Richard Loeb, who I'll call Rick... Nathan Leopold tried to do the perfect crime just for the thrill of it and how the police unraveled their convoluted idiocy is pretty amazing this is the story of Rick and Naughty Can I just tell you that I have I've been exhausted of puns. I showed my partner like the tiniest little mark on my wrist and I was like, mm, I don't know what this little mark is. Does this look like, you know, it might be a skin thing to you? Mm-hmm. To which he replied, mm, I don't know. I wonder if it's fungal. But let's not get rash about it. Mm-hmm. And my soul left my body and Jess, whatever was left, you've now scraped out with like one of those dental plaque scrapers. (laughs) I'm just, I'm thinking of like something torture porny. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's like one of my friends did a pub quiz. It was really good. And we had to think of a joke. And he had written down in an envelope what kind of joke it was. And it's like, at the end, when he, when he, when he said out all our jokes, it's like, and I'll lift out this. And if you have done the kind of joke that's on this letter, you get no points. And of course it was puns. And every single one of us <laughs> did puns. And so he lifted it out. It's like, puns, you're all fired. And we we're like, ah, shit. <laughs> you're right. Puns are the best. But back to this. The perfect crime. Mm-hmm. Chapter Mm -hmm. one, a.k.a. you son of a bitch, I'm in. (laughs) So, two teenage uni students in Chicago in 1924 were driving back from an impulsive, impromptu road trip. The trip was done specifically to steal just some random shit from his old school. And what they'd got was an expensive typewriter. So in the book, The Thrill of Its, author Simon Bartz writes, Could there have been a greater contrast among the students at Chicago that presented by Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold? Richard was gregarious and sociable. Nathan, misanthropic and aloof. See, this is another thing where it's like, I think this describes us, us too. I was just thinking and that. Anyway, I'll keep going. So the quote continues. Richard impressed everyone with his easy and open charm, his pleasant, his, <laughs> sure. his pleasant affability, his humorous mm-hmm. mannerisms. Nathan, who projected a disdainful and supercilious, <laughs> arrogant attitude, appeared exactly mm-hmm. opposite in character and temperament. <laughs> All right, listeners, you have to vote. Which one is Nathan and which one is Rick? <laughs> Nathan, like... 
fucking Simon Burns in this book, he wants to fuck Richard, seriously. Every time <laughs> he describes Richard, it's like, and he's gorgeous and amazing. And he wants to kill Nathan because he's like, and the slimy little weasley rat pig sniveled up disgustingly. <laughs> Caravaggio-esque, yes. So in the book, yeah, he's just like, is constantly fucking over Richard, who is this like sickly, gross, horrible <laughs> goblin to Richard's beauty, charisma, and natural hotness. So the two of them, picture them, you know, they were Frodo and Gollum. Frankenstein mm-hmm. and Igor, Frodo and Sam, and Frodo had a lot of servants, apparently. <laughs> Basically, master and servant, with Nathan being a sniveling, greasy Caravaggio weasel who's clawing devotion to Richard, often embarrassed Richard. But Rick kept Nathan around because there was no one else to join in on his stupid, fucking ridiculous schemes. So it's kind of... Do you want to do a podcast? Do a podcast with me! And you're like, no, I don't want to. And I grabbed, I grabbed you and did it anyway. <laughs> exactly. You need a sidekick. You need someone around mm-hmm. who you're like, do, we're doing a thing now! And they go, okay. So it's just more useful to have a sidekick than not. I'm just saying. So the two were driving home, the buzz of the entire bootleg bottle of gin because it was prohibition, kind of wearing off, and the thrill of their stupid little capers subsiding. Both of them were kind of feeling frustrated. Dawn was finally breaking as they were driving on their six-hour drive in their 1920s struggle buggy along stupid 1920s bumpy roads. This was kind of starting to sour them. Because... For Richard, this just wasn't enough. He thought this was going to be the thing that finally made him have feelings. Because they were both incredibly wealthy rich boys. Mm. Why the hell had they bothered to steal $74 from the wallets of their sleeping students in the halls of residence? This huge (laughs) rare typewriter, fountain pens, all of it garbage. You know you're a shit person when you have all of this wealth and you go, (laughs) let's rob a school. Yeah. Teachers have to buy supplies for their students. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. But <laughs> the, this just didn't tickle him the way he thought it would. Nothing thrilled Richard anymore. So then, genius struck him. Everything in his life was leading up to this moment. Both of these boys, incredibly intelligent boys. Nathan studied philosophies and law. Richard was as athletic and cunning. And... <laughs> They were both so much smarter than everybody else. Of course, teenagers thought to themselves, they could make... (laughs) I'm different. I'm just so special. They could commit the perfect crime. A crime so perfect, so daring, so exciting, that even imagining such an intricate and convoluted scheme was thrilling to him. Let alone... This sounds like so many guys that I've dated. It's every teenager thinking that they're better than everybody and the best and clever and good. And also, have you heard of this thing called Nietzsche? Nietzsche! So not only would Chicago be talking about this for years, but they would never be caught. Chapter 2, The Boys. So the shit... The the shitty... The city of Chicago. If you ask for (laughs) Mm -hmm. me to point it on a map, I know it's in America, but where is that? Is it in <laughs> Chapter 2, Chicago. Where is where it? Where even is it, though? 
Do you even know? No one does. Is it in, like, the South? The West? Not a fucking clue. But what I do know is that it was a roaring place in the 20s where crime (laughs) was a huge spectacle and everyone adored crime. So, and also there was, like, a ton of rich people there, like Rick's family. So the Richard Lower family was super, super rich. Albert Henry Lower, Richard's dad, was a lawyer, and he was once the vice president of Sears and Roebuck, and he was also exceptionally well-connected. Now, Philippa, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. What is Sears and Roebuck? What is that? I don't know. The book mentioned it a lot, and then didn't expand on it, like I was just automatically supposed to know what it is. But I don't. I want to be like, is it a clothes store? Is it a Wall Street thing? I don't know. But it's a rich person place. And so much so that no one even bothered explaining what it is in the book about stuff. I was right. Okay, so I think that the book that you read is racist against non-Americans to assume that we know what this Mm -hmm. is. But it is an American chain of department stores. All right, okay. It's d- oh, so, those horrible yeah. places that are super dead. It's not a Wall Street thing. Basically, it's a rich person thing. So super disgustingly, disgustingly eat the rich, wealthy kind of wealth. Mm-hmm. Their mother as well, Anna Henrietta, who was also like kind of like a socialite. So this family was rubbing elbows with the tippy-tippy-top West Egg Gatsby-style richos. Oh my god, I can only imagine the clothes. Oh, the aesthetic. <laughs> oh, the feathers. Oh, the feathers and the dresses. So Richard was born in 1905, had all the benefits of being an excessively rich, rich boy. And that benefit extended to the mother, who was like, I've got this kid... <laughs> I ain't raising that. I've got parties to go to at the Gatsby place. Fuck you. Was her name Daisy Buchanan? Yes. And so Richard was raised by his governess, basically, Emily Struthers. Emily was an attractive woman in her early 30s, confident woman, harsh but fair, never applied the rod to the boy, but she expected to be obeyed. She was his mother figure. Basically, she raised him, and she was really ambitious for Richard, because she kind of wasn't in her own life, because she was a woman, and women aren't allowed to do anything, so she wanted to make sure that he studied exceptionally hard, because he had that spark of intelligence, and she was like, I'm not going to let that go to waste, and for you to just become like a slouchy, idiot, rich boy, you've got to kind of earn it a little bit. So (laughs) he was a bright young lad, took to it well, but... My favorite thing ever is when you tell someone already born into vast privilege, spoiled, wanting for nothing, that they're the smartest, most special, most handsome, (laughs) most excellent person around, it can really skew your perception of your place in the world. Mm -hmm. But he was stringent in his lessons. He got deep, deep, deeply involved in anything Arthur Conan Doyle wrote because he became obsessed (laughs) with Sherlock Holmes because... Sherlock was the smartest, most special, most handsome, most excellent person around. You know, Sherlock's wits clashed against the would-be criminals and emerged victorious. Jess, I'm telling you now Mm -hmm. that whenever I see a a dating prospect who identifies with House or Sherlock, I swipe left mm-hmm. is that which way you swipe when it's a no i, I don't, don't know. know i'm a boomer you, s- you swipe in the no direction <laughs> yes i go hmm and i delete tinder from my phone <laughs> and then you burn everything you own 
and then start again, because that's the only recourse. (laughs) So by the time he was 14, this is generally where the spirit of rebellion gets into kids anyway. But Emily was pushing him so hard, like, he basically didn't really get to play with other boys, because he was always studying and revising and just doing boring shit. (laughs) And his parents basically fucking ignored him, because they were doing very rich, important people things. Richard felt he couldn't endure this crushing of his will from this woman any longer. So here's where he started to hone his fine skills of lying. He would push her, see how much he could get away with, outsmarting her like Sherlock. And he got a little thrill whenever his lies would work. Finally, when he was 15, though, Emily was let go because he kind of no longer needed a nanny, you know? (laughs) Did he, though? Mm, Didn't he? Didn't he? But this was a kind of a breaking point for Richard, because Emily was his mother figure, a tiger parent though she may have been. She was also his, almost his entire emotional support structure, the only person that gave him any attention, telling him that he was the smartest, most special, most handsome, most excellent person around. And his sharp mind, obsessed with crime, was getting channeled into studies, keeping him busy. But now when that was gone, he was unleashed. He had no channel and was kind of freewheeling now into living his fantasies of being a fucking shithead. Although I I appreciate that he identifies with Sherlock, presumably, Mm -hmm. but if his goal is to commit crimes... Isn't he more of like a Moriarty figure? I, I haven't so. I haven't really read a lot of Sherlock. I assume Moriarty is the bad guy. Moriarty. Moriarty. I don't, I'm South African. <laughs> I love that. Any any pronunciation of something you're like, I'm from South Africa. <laughs> I can't pronounce anything. So, now he's reeling from his combined sense of loss and purposelessness and freedom from oppression. Here at the University of Chicago, he meets Nathan. And so, Nathan Leopold. Nathan's family were also incredibly rich. His father was also Nathan Leopold. Was from, uh, he was a German-Jewish immigrant, and he came to the US and made his fortune with a freight transport company because, you know, the German efficiency or whatever. This is sounding all very Atlas Shrugged as you go along. <laughs> mm. Um, Nathan was born in 1904 and was also supposedly a child prodigy. Blah, blah, blah. They were both really smart boys. Age 15, he was described as having a sallow... This is a Kenworth. The guy was like, he fucking hates Nathan. So he's described as a sallow complexion, black hair, evasive eyes. (laughs) And he had a really unhappy childhood. So he's basically your greasy emo kid. I'm kind of like, and I might be wrong because I have not read this book, mm-hmm. but is the author like being anti-Semitic with this book? <laughs> Maybe. Like, what, what's his beef? What's his damage? What's your Why damage? Why does he hate this poor he kid? He really fucking hates this kid too. It's so funny. He was bullied a lot. And at the school, he, he was bullied at school because he went to like a peasant normal school. And so he was bullied because his parents were super rich. And they were like, ha ha, money loads, money loads. Here comes penny bags. <laughs> Goody two shoes type thing. Anyway, so his his dad also was always busy being a railroad guy, doing important uh, businessman stuff. His brothers were quite a lot older than him, so he didn't really have any companionship for the longest time. His mother had an unexplained illness from giving birth to Nathan, 
It was now bed, probably because he was Gollum, and he came clawing out of that mountain of secrets or whatever with his fingernails. I don't I know. I think that honestly, what was it? He was obviously some kind of hideous, like slug monster or demon spawn, because she was bedridden and basically an invalid after he was born. <laughs> so, the only companionship he had was his governess. <laughs> Matilda Vance. So, much like Emily, she was an attractive, strong-willed woman, because apparently they only hire hot women in the 30s to be nannies. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Anyway, she spoke only German. She was energetic and flirty. And how dare women be those things? So she was the victim of rumours that she was sleeping with the 17-year-old Simon Leopold, oh. and worse, that she was sexually intimate with Nathan, who was 12. Mm. Pretty gross. So having no one else in his life, Nathan was in love with Matilda, who stat-raped him, basically. Did she, or was it rumor? Uh, it the book is kind of evasive about it. It's like, probably this did happen, but it was all allegedly unproven. But this kind of did happen, and it was gross. So, uh, yeah, mm. bad. Stat raped this poor a, a child, 12-year-old child. Mm -hmm. So she was at once his mother figure, but also his rapist. Anyway... <sighs> Even though his home life was a confusing and miserable mess, he was still nerding down at school and rocketed through and blah, blah, blah. He was great. He was smart. Great, great, great. And he was getting deep into the shit that you can probably guess is coming for any disgusting, lonely, damaged, greasy emo person. <laughs> Nietzsche. My chemical romance. <laughs> and... It, to paraphrase in Nietzsche, if you don't know, there's the concept of the Superman, the Ubermensch. So they would stand outside the law because they're this godlike person who is beyond our petty humanness. The, the Ubermensch is the smartest, most special, most handsome, most excellent person around. Nathan purported that morality need not apply to this superhuman because anything <sighs> they did, it only mattered if it gave them pleasure. Anything else was insignificant. Okay, but who among us at the age of 16 or whatever has not read A Genealogy of Evil and gone, mm, yes, I am the lion, the blonde, godlike figure destined to rule, whereas you all are from the slave caste, destined to serve in misery and resent... Mm, yes. Not me. Not me. Not no me. one. Nope. No. So... Both of them meeting at the University of Chicago, perhaps bonding over the fact that they had sexy nannies. Nathan <laughs> met Rick at University of Chicago. Nathan was stricken because Rick was this incredibly good-looking guy. Athletic build, perfect features, blue smizing eyes, a bit of cheekiness in there, you know, tall, brownish blonde hair. You're making me think of that episode in in Community when the dean sees Jeff and just goes, oh, 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 oh. It's too handsome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because, like, Nathan was there looking like Severus Snape, and then in comes... <clears throat> and they're both in, like, the 1920s garb, too, so, like, high trousers, high, high, so high, so, so high, <laughs> with all probably suspenders as well. Mm. Yeah. Trilbies. Um, Were Trilbies a 20s thing? Trilbies. A, like, just strewn around the street. A Trilby just, like, tumbling down the street like a tumbleweed. Mm. 
So to outsiders, their relationship was kind of confusing because it seemed like they had nothing in common. But Nathan basically worshipped Rick. To him, he was this godlike, confident Adonis. And Rick was clearly spiralling, as all teenagers do, but he was experimenting with drinking, but with the added bonus of fast privilege, and no one could fucking touch you. The kind of thing where it's like, you could do crimes, and he's like, don't you know who I am? And everyone's like, yeah, we do, and you're super rich, so fine. Continue burning me slightly. And he's like, yes, I shall. (laughs) And Rick basically loved that Nathan loved him. And it was fun to keep around this puppy-eyed goblin that worshipped the ground you walked on. He's like, yes, this is right. Everyone should worship it. And so there was this, they had this codependent, disgustingly destructive relationship bloomed of master and follower. So we know how they met and they were pals. But they were also fucking. Mm-hmm. I figured as much. Chapter three, the workhouse. so i i didn't do the workhouse and i'll tell you why it's because i got to saw human beings for the first time in six months more or less and like you're allowed two people to be in your garden and so yesterday it was sunny and i had my neighbors over and we talked to face to face with human beings and it was amazing (laughs) it was amazing that sounds like a nightmare to me, but but I'm we happy had a for you. It was so good. I got to talk to people, but basically, I didn't have enough time to do the workhouse. So Philippa is doing it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we're in the we're in the workhouse. Our orphans are not enjoying their class privilege. No, you don't have any of that. So since they're boring, we're going to have to talk about something that isn't yeah. orphans. Have you heard of Robert Carolyn? Oh, tell me more. Well, most people haven't heard of him because the Vatican has made it a mortal sin to speak his name. Oh. I've, I've damned myself just bringing the subject up. <laughs> In the medieval period... Things connected to the saints and to Christ himself were considered to be relics imbued with holy power. Churches would all vie to have the tongue or the skull or the collarbone of whatever saint because it would draw people to your church and give you no small amount of political power as well. Mm. Now, obviously, a relic from Jesus would be super valuable. Oh, that's like a tippy top. But since he ascended bodily into heaven after rising from the dead, he didn't leave much behind, which was quite inconsiderate of him, I think. A dick. Except <laughs> it's funny you should say that. His foreskin. Since Jesus was Jewish, he presumably would have been circumcised. It's I think there's a story connected to it in one of the Apocrypha. I didn't write down which book it was. And I'm not making this fact up or trying to be disrespectful. It's a fact that a number of so-called foreskins of Christ, or holy prepuces, as Wikipedia calls them, (laughs) have appeared in Europe since the medieval period. Incidentally, they were apparently all destroyed in, like, the Reformation and the French Revolution, and I'm like... I love it. They were all destroyed in the Great Foreskin Fire of the 1899s. So whether these foreskins are genuine or not is another story. 
This in this is where Robert Carolyn comes in. Robert was a priest in the 1400s who made it his holy mission to prove that the prepuces were fake. <laughs> he spent his life traveling from church to church, examining the so-called foreskins of the Lord to prove that the pious were wasting their pilgrimages on these phony relics. Except that the opposite happened. <gasps> In the process of studying these relics, touching them, picking them up, scanning them really close, licking (laughs) them, rubbing them. We joke, but kissing um, (gasps) relics was a big thing. Wow. (laughs) So, in the process of studying these relics, Carolyn became a true believer. But if all these foreskins were real, what did that imply? Was Jesus super well endowed? Did he have a holy hydra, you know, down there? Or did Satan place seemingly real but ultimately fake foreskins on the earth along with the dinosaur bones to fool mankind? Thinking out the box. Now the church liked none of this. It's one thing to be into fraudulent foreskins, but to actually try to make sense of the truth? No. Blasphemy. Mm-mm. 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 None of that. And so Carolyn's name was written in the bad book in the black archives of the Vatican, never to be spoken again. <gasps> Until now. <laughs> Thank you, Robert Carolyn, for helping us to speak the truth and for being our patron. Yes. Thank you, all of our patrons as well. The support means a lot because we are very poor and it helps us get things like emu legs and stupid taxidermy (laughs) and other things, which is very important. You are all literally paying for this podcast to be up. So thank you so much. We couldn't do it without your support. And if anybody else wants to be involved with nasty, nasty rumors, you can support us on patreon.com forward slash awful forever podcast. Or if you want to just spread the word of, I wanted to go on to our Lord. If you want to just (laughs) spread the word, then please feel free to do so by adding us on Adding us on Twitter? Tweeting us on Twitter? I don't know. I'm, I'm a millennial. Something to do with Twitter. At Awful Forever Pod on Twitter. Also, tell your friends. Tell tell someone. Be like, have you heard? Have you heard this shit? It's good shit. Mm, it's good shit. But, and with that, let's get on with the story of the perfect crime. Our poor orphans were not even, like, mentioned. We were just like, eh, fuck the orphans. Didn't even give a shit about the orphans. Like, yeah, this is the workhouse. Yes, shut up with your pleas for mercy and shorter working hours. No. We have rumors, and then we have an episode. Like, we basically stride in and go, have you heard? And talk to each other, and then just, like, stride out again. And we don't even deign to look upon them. <sighs> As it should be. Carry on. So chapter four of the story that I'm telling you of the perfect crime. Chapter four, a doings transpiring. So, yes, Richard and Nathan were fucking. Richard loved crime, and Nathan loved Nietzsche and Richard. But Rick was seemingly asexual. He he did sleep with a lot of women, but reportedly felt little to no pleasure or desire in it. 
And Nathan, because he was so in love with Rick, who is this basically godlike figure in his eyes, begged him to sleep with him. And Rick was like, meh, why not? He didn't really care either way. So they would fuck. And he would he would fuck Nathan just to keep him around and keep him entertained. <laughs> you don't do that for me. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Because the idea of you disgusts me. <laughs> In a good way. In the best way. But Rick was obsessed with the crime and mystery and Sherlock and Moriarty and that kind of thing. And like I said, he he tried to do crime to give him feelings. You know those things that people have? <laughs> it's like, yeah, the fucking and everything. No. Meh. Women. Meh. Alcohol. Uh. Taxidermy. Oh, Emu legs. Maybe a little. There was a little something there. But only if he stole them. Mm. <laughs> so he tried his hand at like a few pretty crimes just to see if he could get away with it kind of as he'd done to test his lying abilities with emily escalation was occurring things needed to get bigger otherwise the thrill feeling would go away that's how sex that's works, how sex works. <laughs> <laughs> but the best and most powerful of all of his fantasies was the idea that if he was ever to be arrested but that it would draw a crowd of hundreds who wanted to admire his excellent daring and cunning this was kind of contradictory because it's like he wanted to do the perfect crime, but then that would mean that have everyone admired he wouldn't him? be caught, but then he would need to be admired anyway. So Richard quotes on his fantasy that if he was ever to be caught, that I was abused, but it was a very pleasant thought. The punishment inflicted on me in jail was pleasant. I enjoyed being looked at through the bars because I was a famous criminal. <laughs> Oh, no. So fantasies for these kind of people rarely remain such. And so Rick was dragging along his goblin-esque sidekick to commit acts of vandalism and, you know, petty thieveries and shit. And Nathan also had fantasies. He had powerful <laughs> fantasies of being a slave because, of course, he was reading Nietzsche a lot. He Oh, I thought he'd be in the other direction. No, he oh. had fantasies of himself as a slave. With oh. Richard as the Ubermensch. And this also was in a in a country where there was slavery and people in living memory from only like fifty-five years ago prior. I think Nietzsche might have weird feelings about people being like, mm, yes, I'm the slave, but in a sexual yeah. way. And Nietzsche's like, please, please don't. Like, don't, no, don't didn't you read it? Didn't you get? <laughs> but uh, yeah, Nathan's fantasy, he was the slave to the king. And the king was the strongest, most handsome. And was so grateful for the love of his slave that they had a passionate love affair. Mm. Nathan was looking upon his friend, who's the smartest, most special, most handsome, most excellent person around. <laughs> and the thought that if this crime and shit gave him pleasure, then morality need not apply. Get out of here, morality. You're not hired here. Don't even ask for the job. That's that's for, you know, that's for sociopath rich boys. Which is where he went along and did everything that Rick asked. We come back to the boys. Sex didn't thrill Richard. Drinking didn't thrill him anymore. The arson and vandalism and petty theft didn't thrill him anymore. The only way he could be slaked could be given pleasure was to outwit everyone and be famous <laughs> the perfect crime so back to the epiphany drive that they were having in the beginning 
They were driving back mm-hmm. from their crime of having stolen this typewriter. <laughs> Just the crime of having stolen this typewriter. The great typewriter caper of 1923. <laughs> Diabolical! It just wasn't enough, Philippa. They needed a real crime. (laughs) This is what they're planning on the drive back. Scheming, plotting, obsessively planning how the fuck the perfect crime would come to be. So they did. They got together, plotting this thing. They were going to do it. It involved trains and letters, dead drops, a kind of treasure hunt style thing of phone calls. (laughs) It had so many different moving parts. It was so convoluted. They once they planned it all, they even tested it of how long it take to drive to this place, how they would get this car, how they would Aww. get this other stuff. They they tested it all out. It's adorable. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It involved trains, anonymousness, fake IDs, disguises. It was ready, the perfect crime. They argued over parts of it, but eventually, as in all things, Nathan caved to Rick's whims. And they planned how they would both have equal parts in it. Because in the infinitesimally small chance that they would be caught, they would both have equal share in the crime. So they wouldn't be tempted to rat each other out in the, uh, you know, the prisoner's dilemma type thing. Mm -hmm. The doings. It was time. This took months as well. They, like, talked it up and down because they were such smart boys that they would, like, try and pick holes in the plans and be like, no, we're teenagers. We're 19 years old. And therefore, we're cleverer than everybody, and this is flawless and perfect. I love that I don't know what the crime is so far, and mm-hmm. I'm imagining them, like, kicking over a dustbin <laughs> or something, and then being like, <gasps> and running away. It's an exciting, good, cool crime for clever boys. <laughs> First, on the day, they're doing it. The crime. It was afoot. Months and months and months of planning. Late nights, staying up, talking about, oh, we're gonna do this exciting good crime for rich boys. First, they needed a rental car. Because Rick had a car, and it was this, like, flashy sports car with, like, white nickel rims. And, oh, my God, I can picture it. The 20s were so stylish. (laughs) But they needed to rent one a bit more low-key. But they needed fake ID to do so, to get one. Step one, get a fake ID. Nathan, because Rick made... They were like, we're going to have equal parts, and I'm going to command you to do it all, Nathan. Nathan was like, okay, it's master. <laughs> oh, this turns me on, master. Mm. I'm your slave, Ubermensch. So Nathan walked into the bank, dressed well, as you know, they're rich boys, they dress well. Black hair, notable slouch, fidgety, sallow, evasive eyes. <laughs> the guy fucking hates this guy. The author hates Nathan. But he walks into the bank and he asks to open a checking account because he was a traveling salesman. To do so, he needed a recommendation from someone living here. And he was like, I'm a traveling salesman. I don't have a recommendation. Put my money in the thing. And so he hands over $100, which is about $6,000 in future money. And he says that his name is Morton D. Ballard. And so the person is like, well, I guess that's a a lot of money to be throwing around. So she writes down the slip of the deposit, gives him the receipt. That was it. Bank certified mm, the ID. The perfect crime. The perfect Paperwork. Crime. Paperwork. <laughs> Paper trail. All of it. Do you know what the perfect crime is? Get as many people involved as you possibly can. <laughs> that doesn't leave loads of evidence. Anyway, they have it. Certified ID. Now that they have ID, they can go. Rent a car. Step two. <laughs> 
Nathan entered the rent car because again, Richard was like, we should have equal parts. Go and do it all, Nathan. <laughs> Goes into the rent car place, holds out the bank slip, which I assume is in like sweaty, shaking hands. <laughs> He is Morton D. Ballard. He wants to rent a car, please. Thank you. But he needs a bit more than that for the car. It's a little bit more involved. They need a recommendation from someone living in town. And he's like, I know somebody. Call this number, this number only. Uh, they will verify uh, that I am uh, Morton D. Uh, uh, Ballard. That I am, that is the person I am. Call this number, please. Thank you. Just like when, you know, we apply for jobs and it's like, Yes, I am um, humongous Ding Wallace, and Philip is an excellent employee and a people person and performs well under pressure. Yes, I am her boss. Yeah, I was her boss. Yep, I worked at the place. We made uh, looks around the carpets. <laughs> we both did that. Anyway, don't ask me any more questions. You're hired. Bye. <laughs> Looks around the place uh, where we made emu legs. Emu legs. Mm -hmm. And taxidermy (laughs) bat teeth. So, pretty much that. Richard Mm -hmm. checked into a hotel, also with a fake name, also calling himself Morton D. Ballard, checked into a hotel. What? And be like, I'm expecting a call. And so the rent-a-car place calls the number, which was the hotel, which is where Rick is. And he answers, and he's like, yes! This is Morton D. Ballard. I mean... This um, is John John ba- Ballard D. Morton. <laughs> anyway, he's the best and most cariest person ever, and he's great at cars. <laughs> so give him a car now. He's good at cars, and he's great, and I love him, and he's real swell. He's a real ring-a-ding-ding chap. And uh, there you go. Done. Car acquired. The fake ID, the recommendation, done. So step three, buy a quick writing paper envelopes because you know you can't use your own stuff you need to get other stuff i assume all of their stuff is like gold-headed letter-headed you know bullshit so they need just like Mm. normal peasant paper envelopes (laughs) crime letters for all the crime letters that they needed to send for this stupid plan (laughs) they also needed hydrochloric acid they purchased well, I say they purchased. Richard made Nathan purchase two <laughs> glass bottles of hydrochloric acid for 75 cents each. They, the stopper was sealed with brown wax to prevent spillage. I'm just picturing this beautiful 20s old-style bottle covered in wax at the top. It's going to look amazing. Oh, my God. Oh, shit. For real? I just remembered. The auction, they're selling a bottle of chloroform. Like, from the 20s, or, like, the 1800s, I think. Like, super early or late century. Oh, I want to join We need that for crimes. Patreon! This beautiful, beautiful (laughs) bottle. Anyway. So, next in the purchase list, a chisel. So, they got all their equipment. All of it bought. Done so. The day... This is like Ocean's Eleven, yeah, but with cool. just two people. They're doing a crime. Good. They are doing a crime, and it's exciting. I think the word is heist. They're doing a heist to <laughs> each other. They're heisting. And then Nathan was like, I'm so turned on, fuck me! And Richard was like, oh, whatever. Fine. <laughs> but... 
the day of the perfect crime. They had the tools, they had the stuff, they had the papers, they did the thing. The day before, at well, they'd done the rehearsal. All was perfect. <laughs> Richard came down on the morning in his 20s way with his beautiful 20s hair and his gorgeous Ubermensch body. And he went down to the family chauffeur, England. He blustered over and shrieked that his car was dumb and he should fix it immediately. Quote, the brakes squeak so much here. He shrieked at his chauffeur that this was annoying and it was going to disrupt his whole routine and I want you to fix them. He barked at his servant. So, and then ordered some Rangoon. <laughs> then he ordered Rangoon. So this is why he wasn't using his car Basically, Nathan drove up in the rental car and Richard fussily blustered inside all huffy <laughs> because his car was stupid. And so England watched the brat drive away in this other car. And so he was like, okay, and was working on the car all day. <laughs> the day of the crime, they were ready. The next step, kidnap a child. Oh, this took what? a turn. Philippa, it's not a fun heist. It's not a fun heist. <laughs> So Nathan argued that they should kidnap a girl because, quote, should they abduct a young girl, it would give him enormous pleasure, he told Richard. That's not what you should say. If he could rape her before (gasps) they killed her. What? Philippa, this isn't a fun heist. It's a murder plot. They wanted to fucking murder somebody because this was the only thing that would give Richard pleasure. But Rick was like, no, goddammit, this is about me, not you. We're getting a boy, and I want a boy because this is about me. And so the next thing to do to add more intricacy, intricacy and convolutedness to this plot, this is why they wanted it to be so exciting and the perfect crime, kidnap a boy, set up a ransom, because the ransom would add all these cool moving parts. They were so rich they didn't need the money. It was just about the thrill of making it so that they could outsmart the police, all that uh-huh. shit. They had previous the previous day on the typewriter that they had stolen Oh no typed mm-hmm. out the ransom notes with Richard dictating to Nathan as he <laughs> typed. So they had this um, typewriter already lying around. This is perfect. They typed it out. All they had to do was pick a victim and then add the name in afterwards. So, yep, Rick made Nathan type it. But Nathan had never used one before, so it was kind of clumsy and slow going. And typewriter experts can tell how hard you hit the keys. So they can tell, you know, are you a typist, which narrows things down, or are you a layman? Just saying. Also, it was flawlessly written, with no grammatical errors whatsoever, which is another kind of clue maybe you're an educated person. I don't know why I'm bringing this up, because they're never going to get caught, but I'm just, you know, I'm just bringing it up for, you know, I'm just bringing it up, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Just hypothetically. We're just just shooting the shit here. I'm still trying to get over the kidnapping. It's like, you know, at the beginning we were joking that, you know, spoiled rich boys are sociopaths. And now I'm like, damn, they really are. Yeah. Moral learned. I also want you to know, in the book, it describes the university building and it describes the law building. Quote, an impressive building in the Gothic style with large bay windows. Oh, no, that's an in-joke. Join our Patreon for in-jokes. Yeah. You got to take a shot every time no i can't tell you shut up unless you've joined the patron and then i'll tell you that and then we can all join in in our in jokes join our little awful forever 
community. We have a Discord server. I don't think we talk about that enough. We have a Discord server, and it's a server. I'm not drunk. You are. <laughs> so they kidnap a lad. They do scoop him right up from the street. Bobby Franks, 14-year-old oh. Bobby, because he was Rick's second cousin and lived across the street from him. Oh. They actually drove around for hours looking for the perfect boy. <laughs> the perfect oh. boy. But Richard was like, no, it's not the perfect boy! And then was getting all like antsy about it. And, and Richard... The only perfect boy could be related to him. He has my genes, therefore he's perfect. <laughs> And oh, it's like they didn't ever read How to Commit a Crime 101. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I need just must remind you that they are 19. Anyway, so these 19-year-olds, cleverest, bestest, most handsome, pick out Bobby because they're like, and he's like, oh, Bobby, get in the car. I need to talk to you about <laughs> my tennis record or something. Just get in the car. And Bobby's like, Okay, but uh, well, I can see my house. I can literally see my house. And he's like, I didn't talk to you about the tennis racket. Get in the fucking car, Bobby. And so he's like, okay, all right. And then gets in the car. And, so, and then they're like, you have been kidnapped. But so they're in the car, right? Rick is in the back. The evil laughter ringing through the windows. You're kidnapped. Bobby's like, what? I don't, I don't, what? So Rick's in the back with, and Nathan is driving because Nathan is being Rick's chauffeur because that's what they're like. And I just love it so much. The idea that he's just constantly flouncing around and Nathan is just there like, yes, yes, master, the please fuck me. <laughs> but, okay, yeah, in the car, Richard is in the back, Nathan is driving. They'd already figured out and planned what they were going to do to get their victim out of the way so that they could conduct the ransom note kidnapping bullshit. Can I just check? So was their aim to murder the boy? Rick took the chisel <gasps> and buried it into the skull of Bobby <gasps> Franks. Oh, of his, did he hate his cousin? He didn't have any feelings other than the Fair thrill enough. of crime. <laughs> he did okay, not hate his cousin. Enough. Basically, they had planned to knock him out and take him away to this place that they'd already thought of was going to be the perfect place to do a murder. And what they were going to do is, like, both strangle him at the same time by, like, tying a <laughs> rope around his neck. Richard would have one end, Nathan would have the other. They would both pull so they would, they would both <sighs> be murderers at the exact same time. So there are so many moving parts. So it's like I couldn't. This it was or this one's already quite long. Like I'm looking at the time now; it's already long. <laughs> but like the planning and plotting, I wanted to put more in because it was just so much. So <laughs> read the book; it's really good. Anyway, so they wanted to knock him out first; so they could go away and do the murder. So what he did was fucking like strike him a lot in the head with this chisel attempting to knock him out and um now he just kind of wasn't becoming unconscious and was screaming oh. and there was blood everywhere and oh. he was selfishly just fucking getting blood all over the fucking and he just selfishly also wasn't becoming unconscious like richard commanded 
Richard was like, be unconscious now. And Bobby just wasn't. And also he was screaming and it was so annoying. And it was just so annoying and irritating to him that he was bleeding everywhere and screaming. So what he did was get a cloth and stuff it down Bobby's neck to kind of just keep him quiet. This seemed to quieten the boy. And so they drove away to the place where they were going to dump the, or, you know, get rid of the body once they'd murdered him. But um, Mm -hmm. they wanted to do it under the cover of darkness. So they stopped and just got some casual hot dogs just while Bobby was in the car bleeding on the carpet. (sighs) Ate some hot dogs, they're fucking monsters. So they arrived at night. Bobby was already dead. Because he buried a chisel in his skull and then stuffed a rag down his throat. And he presumably had the fucking chisel like sticking out of his head anyway. How annoying. Oh, he died already. <laughs> and he's ruining everything. He's ruining everything. <laughs> anyway, Rachel calmed down. So time to just get rid of the body. Whatever. They undressed Bobby and poured the acid they'd bought on his face to make him <gasps> unidentifiable. Get rid of his face. Get that face out of there. We don't want this face. Also, they poured it on his genitals because he'd been circumcised. So they were like, I don't know, but that could maybe narrow him down. Anti-Semitism, whatever. Pour the acid on his face. Pour the acid on his dick. Face, dick, face, dick. Acid all the time. So, should the body be found, which was absolutely ridiculous because... Richard was the smartest and most special, most handsome and most excellent person around. It wouldn't be found. He picked the perfect, most good and betterest hiding place in the whole <laughs> land. But just in case, they wanted to get rid of his identifiable face. And so then they stuffed the body into a drainage pipe. The drainage pipe was, uh, it was, it was kind of hidden, but um, we'll see how hidden it might be. Anyway, they the body was bigger than they thought, so they had to like kick him into it yeah and like kick him and stuff him in so they thought that this pipe was the perfect most special most excellent place that no one would ever 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 find a body here and it was done chapter five the unraveling on the way back to the car nathan heard a sound a little plink he turned around and he couldn't see, like, he um, used his torch, had a look, couldn't see that he dropped anything. Must have been nothing. But he gets into the car, oh. and they drive back. Time to get rid of all the evidence, and begin the next step of their convoluted plan. The ransom note. Fucking pointless bullshit. So, by the time they'd arrived, word had already spread that Bobby was missing. And so it was time to call the family. Richard made Nathan call the Franks family. So he called them, calling himself George Johnson, telling them that they had their son. His son was alive and fine, but his instructions for them to give them the ransom of $10,000 and then more instructions would follow. And then they would get their boy back alive and well and good once they'd got the money. But Nathan hung up and went back and they went back to burn the clothes. But the blanket that they had had so much blood on it, they knew that if they burnt it, there would be this like bloody, acrid smell. So they kept that aside to destroy later. Are you, you, you're, you're upset. Tell me about it, Phil. <laughs> you're just going, <laughs> now. <laughs> I mean, couldn't they just... And look, I'm not saying that this would make it the perfect mm-hmm. crime because this crime was fucked up from the beginning. But couldn't they just ditch the car? And 
What? Surely if Nathan calls the Frank family, they'd recognize his voice going, We have your child! Because that's literally the best friend fuck buddy of the person. lives across the street from you. (laughs) (laughs) Who's seen with you all the time. I think that he put on a voice, maybe. Because he's like, oh. I am good. <laughs> oh, like like us reading Varney. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay, slightly better. The clothes burnt. They went to drive. Uh, Rick was going to drive Nathan home. So we got in his Rick. Also, what about the note? Sorry. Mm-hmm. What about the typewritten note with the ransom? Why did they need to phone? Uh, they can't carry. They like. <laughs> <sighs> So the the the, the notes. It was all part. You see, you're just too dumb. You just don't understand it. It's too <laughs> uh, too clever enough. for you. So they would call, and they said that there was going to be more instructions following, and there was going to be a note, oh, and they were going to oh, leave another note at this other place that they would go. Uh, they would give them instructions to be like, go to this place at three p.m. and they would go there, okay. and there would be a note waiting for them with further instructions. Uh, Listen, you're it's just, a multimedia ransom. I get it. Okay. You're not mm-hmm. an intelligent rich boy. You don't understand it. And it's not your fault you're this stupid. So I I'm won't sorry. hold it against you. It's okay. So <laughs> I'm poor and a woman. Poor and a woman. My bad. And yeah. They, they burnt the clothes and uh, Rick needed to drive Nathan home. So he got in his red sports car with the white nickel rims, the one that he commanded the chauffeur to fix, which was now fixed. It had been there all day and was fixed. The, I... I <laughs> I don't know. There wasn't really a problem with it. There was a squeak. And so the guy was just like, put a piece of oil on and was like, it doesn't squeak anymore, sir. He's like, that's damn fucking right, it doesn't squeak anymore. And then backhanded him or something. Anyway, he got into his ex, in his excitement, he forgot that he still had the murder weapon on him. And what a smart, perfect crime person would do would hide that weapon. But he's like, ah, fuck it, and throws it out the window. Why? It landed on the path heavily, and out from the shadows, a night watchman called Hunt saw this happen. <sighs> he saw the rich boy's red sports car that was incredibly, you know, flashy, and everyone knew who it belonged to. And he picked it up, and this weapon had dried blood all over it. And he's like, hmm. Well. <laughs> well. The next morning, it was time to do the ransom shit. England's also that morning they come down and England the chauffeur sees Rick and his weird slimy greaseball friend cleaning a green car this was weird because Rick had never done any physical labour in his entire <laughs> life oh he was foiled by his rich boyness uh, England was like what you doing there son and Rick winked at him and said they'd been doing a spot of bootlegging and it had only gone and gone ahead and spilled the wine all over the fucking car whoopsie <laughs> so they were cleaning it and he was like why are you cleaning it instead of getting servants to do it as you screech at us to do everything and he's like I just didn't want to sh- get out go away <laughs> <laughs> so oh, no. 
They delivered the ransom note and it arrived at the Frank's household, had instructions, which was really stupid, convoluted shit involving a dead drop, and they were going to go, and you needed to get on a train at this certain point, and then it'll go to you at this night. Honestly, it's absolutely fucking ridiculous. And then they'd be in disguise, and they'd pick it up after down the line, all like a 19-year-old thought of it, basically. But the plan came to a screeching halt at the very first step. Because the first step they did, they called. They called them on the telephone, it was like, a taxi is arriving and the taxi arrived and the Franks who were on the other line and he was like get in and go to this address and there'll be further instructions for you there hangs up all very important (laughs) but in his grief and panic Daddy Franks immediately forgot the address that he was just told to go to and so Uh, they didn't go and that was it foiled (laughs) that was their whole plan (laughs) fucked up because like the time came and went and nobody was there for their secret little like note that was like hidden in a specific locker that would tell them to get on the train but basically that's all it took they ruined the fun they did it the guy was an idiot basically and it ruined it they had talked (sighs) this plan up and down for months all of it was like this perfect well-oiled machine except for they didn't take in uh, into account other people and their feelings. Look, mm. if you're asking me, they should have rehearsed it with the Franks family. They should have been in on it so that they knew what to do. Mm-hmm. Like, they should have been like, they can rehearse it. Mm-hmm. And then he's, and when I tell you where to find the Rangoon, I mean your son. <laughs> then, you know, you just have not memorize the address, maybe. They should have done that, but they didn't. Oh. Oh, they should have sneakily dropped that address in, like, conversation oh. points. Like... So that it would kind of be in their minds and be like, I've been to five Haraway Place, yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, sneakily put it in. I should have done that. That's, this that's is, why I'd be a good this criminal. This is why we'd be the doing the good, the perfect crime good mm. than everyone else. But, um... So this was like a day later and they were like trying to get this ransom just for the kind of excitement again. They didn't need the money or care about it. But then they were just like, ah, well, fuck that up. Whatever. The next day, the very next day, the body that they'd hidden so well was found immediately. (laughs) And also it was identified immediately as Bobby Franks because all the acid did was just kind of discolor the skin. Oh, and the point. That little plink that Nathan thought he heard did hear it was his special optimized rich boy glasses. The kind of glasses that only three people in Chicago could possibly have. Because How did he not realize that he dropped his glasses? I guess they were like reading glasses or something because he didn't wear them all the time. Uh, but, uh, uh. Yeah. but like I said, these glasses, they had these special rims that only three people in Chicago could possibly have. Because they went to the opticians, they were like, what's these glasses? And he's like, ah, oh, these special ones, I've only sold three. <sighs> so there's that. The detectives must have felt that this case was just made for them. Yeah. They were like, once in your life, you'll have a case like this. So many pieces of evidence. <laughs> the ransom note, too, was typed from that stolen, expensive typewriter, the kind that was known to have been stolen, and <laughs> was from nowhere in Chicago. And the style of letter was meant that it was by someone educated. So now there, there's glasses that only belong to three people from an educated person, narrowing it down. Here you go. Super, super, super narrowed down. It could be like, oh, it could only possibly be maybe this person or that person. 
Oh, yeah. And then there was the night watchman who saw Rick throw a bloody chisel out of his sports car. <laughs> and also the chauffeur that saw him cleaning wine from a car that wasn't his. And then all the people, when they were doing the disguise bullshit, fucking around, talking to a million different people, all those million different people were like, oh, yeah, we saw these two teenagers fucking around, giggling and being like, oh, my name is uh, Fakeman Mc... <laughs> alias name. <laughs> All of them. So anyway, Rick was fucking loving all of this. He was sort of flitting around speaking to the police constantly because he was offering them theories, being like, whoever these amazing, handsome, most special, most good people were, they were so clever. And he went, he went so far as to be like, I bet, listen, from... You might not know this because you're not clever, but I bet, listen, hear me out. Maybe what they wanted to do, based on the, th- the thoughts of in my brain of how special I am, I think they wanted them to go to this address, maybe. And so brought the police and people to this address and be like, and then took the ransom note that they'd left and be like, aha, as I thought, because I figured it out, because you didn't, because you're dumb and I'm smart. And I figured out with the things that I know, look. And was like, just as I expected, the ransom note was hidden here all along. I'm going to say that this is turning out to be like Sherlock because, and this is my problem with the Sherlock Holmes novels. You can never work out the plot when you read it because Sherlock has always been off somewhere doing a secret thing. And then he'll come back and be like, yes, incidentally, it was just a dog, not a demon hound. And this is how I worked it out while you were fucking around here. Mm -hmm. And... This is what Rick is doing. Yeah. He's like, it's fucking around. He's like, I solved it. It's kind of like you never have the choice, the chance to solve anything in Sherlock because can't. The plot is it. And only the writer knows. And so it's like this. Exactly that. So, yeah, they were at the pharmacy, got the letter. Duh, duh, duh. And so these two boys, they weren't arrested per se. At first, huh? they were just... Because all the all of these things pointed to them. So so the police were like, okay, we just need to question them, Richard, just for questioning, just to be like, oh, there's all these things, they seem a bit sus. And uh, what do you what do you know? And um, you know, they the boys also they kept in their minds too that uh, they wanted to do the murder together so that the prisoner's dilemma wouldn't happen and all these things. Except um Rick kind of made Nathan do all of it, you know, apart from the actual murder part itself that he kind of accidentally got a bit too gung-ho about and did. But anyway, yeah, the police, they bring in Rick. Where have you been that night? What's going on? We just got some, like, questions for you. And then um, he was like, oh, yeah, where where I was, where I was, well, where I, where I was, where I was, was, <laughs> I took my car out and got some ladies and we just pied. And the police were like, oh, but, I mean, your chauffeur said that he was working on the car all day. And then, and so then Rick was like, oh. I did it! I am the genius that you have been after all this time! It was me! Everything was me! It was the most perfect crime! You couldn't figure it out, but you did it! Oh I my smashed. god! I kind of confessed immediately. <sighs> but then he also, he's like, <clears throat> actually, no, it wasn't me. It was all Nathan. <laughs> he did all of it. Uh, no, uh, would I just yell there? Ignore that. That was, uh, <laughs> it was all Nathan. He did it, he did it, he did it all. The rest of Nathan, he was the one. 
So then they brought in Nathan, and Nathan cracked immediately also, just straight oh, away no. and said that it was all right. So It works just as I would expect it to. The prisoner's dilemma thing that they tried so hard, they just fucking did it right away. <laughs> they were just like, prisoner's dilemma, why? It was him, it was all him! So there was a trial, that was a fucking spectacle, because it was Chicago in the 20s, and it was kind of like the movie Chicago kind of thing, where everyone was so fucking excited about this crime, because it was a horrible, brutal thing as well, these rich and these rich 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 boys killing a rich 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 boy for no fucking reason just because they wanted to play at criminal anyway so they confessed so it wasn't really a trial it was more like a sentence in hearing and they were chucked in prison and richard was famous which is kind of what he wanted all along and was constantly boasting about it and you know that thing about him wanting to be abused in prison because he was being a martyr he was killed in prison because he was shivved to death. And uh, that is the story of the perfect crime. <laughs> I, I loved how perfect it was. I think working with a different definition of perfect, mm-hmm. but, yeah. but it was perfect for me. It was perfect in an everything is awful forever kind of way. We would do so much better, Jess. We have done. It was me! I did it! I'm the one giving me all the credit! (laughs) We're just broadcasting our guilt on a podcast. (laughs) No one fucking listens to this shit, we're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Mm, I mean, not so much the murder and... Yeah, it took a turn, I'm sorry. I didn't warn you about it. I kind of wanted it to be like a bamboozle. Like, I wanted it to be set up in a way that's like, this is a fun heist. Oh, no. (laughs) I thought it was going to be like, you know, he wore green and yellow together and that was a fashion crime. Pink and green must never be seen. I loved it. It was great. Good. And the moral of the story is don't fucking read Nietzsche. Don't read Nietzsche. But do read For the Thrill of It by Simon Bats. It's a really good book. Beautiful. And thinking of some things are nice sometimes. Some things will be nice sometimes. I don't remember what our things were for last time. Because we have like a thing that we should accomplish in the week, but then I forget what they were. It's my thing this time. It was yours last time. I can't remember what you said. No, I don't remember. I don't know if I did it. I probably did. I probably did. I probably aced it. It was probably amazing because I am the spe- most special, <laughs> most handsome, mostly. Um, some things will be nice sometimes. Uh, it's been a week. My rabbit has been in surgery, which is why the Patreon is a little late. Sorry, Patreon. Yeah, sorry, it's going to come up in the next day or so. Um, I've just been caring for a sick bunny. I think that mine, it's it's very cliche, but I hope that my some things are nice sometimes, is that my bunny gets better. Yeah. Because she is very small and very old and very expensive. And she's not herself at the moment. She is very cute. Like, she's got a little shaved tummy, and it's like a little naked mole rat, Aww. and I like to touch it sometimes because it upsets her. <laughs> and she's... Very cute when she feels pathetic, but I also want her to get better so that I can stop worrying and carry on with my life yeah. with my bunny. Yeah. That's a good I did one. do a nice thing today. Mm-hmm. I did an egg hunt for my partner. Mm. So I hid little eggs around the house and I got him to find them all. Oh, that's fun. And so that there are good things in my life. It's not just sick pets. Yeah. 
but yeah. yeah she is a wonderful bunny and speedy recovery for her she is she is made of malice and hatred and i think she'll stay alive out of spite so i am <laughs> i'm not worried she's gonna be fine as long as she can like get unnecessary vet tests and she's actually in perfect health but making me pay yeah. for the cts yeah that sounds like that's fun. right that's her thing if she had you know proper vocal cords that could make noise she would be like <laughs> <laughs> And now we're going to do things that definitely aren't crimes, mm-hmm. but certainly are perfect. Yeah. And none of you will ever know what it is that we're going to do because there's so many moving parts and you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. Like it involves a train. We've got disguises. Then we're going to go and call and put the thing there. We're going to get on the train and throw the thing on the train. And then Philip is going to pick it up down the line. Then we're going to go and it's going to go there. And it's going to be great. Put on your fake mustache. Bye. <laughs>